So, um, the Bible study today is Mark 7, verses 24 to 37, and it's found on 1009 in the Church Bibles. I'll just give you a second to find it at home as well. So, Mark 7, 24 to 37. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, and yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of Decapolis. There, some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to t place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongues. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. on there we're on fantastic great to see you. i've been away for a couple of weeks on holidays and it's good to be back and great to be back teaching god's word let's pray as we reflect on an interesting passage father we do thank you for the lord jesus there is no one like him and father just help us to be impacted by him again today and just to renew our commitment to following him in this world in jesus name amen well, the series is called The Story That Changed the World, and I was sitting there thinking, how does this story change my world? It's an interesting story from a long time ago. But there's no doubt uh, God's word at times can seem distant, but as you start to dig down, there's incredible things to find there. And I want to start with a very simple question as we think about encountering Jesus. Um, why do you follow Jesus? And each week when I've been preaching in this series uh, on Mark's Gospel... I've had one question I've wanted to ask of us. Um, if you go back to the start, thinking about the parable of the seeds and the sower, it was what is your hearing like? Uh, Jesus' boating adventures on the seas, calming them. How well do you know him? And then last time I spoke on the topic of demons, it's how important is prayer for you? Well, the question today is not the question of how or what, but why? 
And it's a very important question to ask, why is it that we follow Jesus? And if I can put that into context, um, it's a question I often ask myself as the world seems to get further away from the memory of the Christian faith. And there's no doubt we live with the memory of the Christian faith, but it's a fading memory here in the country. And the gap between our culture and the church and the gospel just seems to widen slightly every year on all sorts of issues. And I think that means two things. One is that the light of the gospel actually can shine brighter into the darkness that comes. So it does provide opportunity, but it also can make it more difficult for us to live as Christians in this world because there'll be differences, challenges to us in wanting to follow Christ. And so the question comes, why do I do this? Why do I follow Jesus? I mean, why do you give up a precious Sunday? It's interesting going on holidays, because uh, I'm always here on a Sunday, to see what, if I can say, the bulk of society does on a Sunday. It's not in church. And I'm very grateful, and it's a really important, necessary thing for Christians to gather weekly uh, in church. Uh, but why do we do it? Uh, why do we love people who we find difficult, which is also what Jesus taught us to do, to love our enemies? Uh, why do we try and tell people about the Lord Jesus and to share the gospel with them in this culture that says any option goes? Why do you live sexually pure lives in a world that is obsessed with sex and says anything is okay? And why do you give your hard-earned money to the gospel, to the ministry and to people in need when our world says just use it for yourself? Why do we follow Jesus? Well, if you've got your Bibles there, it's Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 24. I'd love you to get them out, and uh, they're under the seat. You might want to have it on your phone, whatever. Uh, and I'm going to go through to beyond the reading that Philippa read so well, uh, to the last story or the beginning story in chapter 8, to tie that in with where we're going. And it is worth saying, I think if you pick the top 10 stories in Mark, you wouldn't pick this section to preach on. If you pick the top 20 stories in Mark, you probably wouldn't pick this story to preach on. Um, it's a story that is very rarely spoken on. I've never preached on it before. Um, it's the beauty of expository preaching, which is we just go through the whole book and take our time and work our way through. That's why we're looking at it today. And there's great stuff to look at, though there is some challenges to navigate. And there's three things that strike me about Jesus in this section as we go through Mark 7 to the end of Mark chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, there is the confronting Jesus, there is the compassionate Jesus, and there is the compelling Jesus. And I want to look at each one of those because I think they answer the question of why do we follow him? Confronting, compassionate, compelling. And that is what Jesus is all at the same time. And so let's look at the first and no doubt most difficult one, the confronting Jesus... Uh, which Philippa read first. I'm going to pick up from verse 24 at the start of the reading. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. It's on the coast, up in the north, away from Israel. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Now, Tyre is in a Gentile area. It's up on the coast, so he's moved beyond the boundaries of Israel. And again, as is the case, often in his ministry, he wants to get out of the public eye. And I take it it's because he wants to rest. Uh, when he was ministering to people, it was exhausting because they just kept coming. And at times he would just withdraw. And no doubt this is one of those occasions. And he enters a house and he just wants some peace and quiet. 
yet he couldn't keep his presence secret. Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, that's another way of saying a demon, came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. It's worth noting a couple of things. Um, In the culture of the day, someone like Jesus, who was esteemed to be a Jewish teacher, for numbers of reasons, would not have engaged with this woman. A, she was a woman, teachers typically wouldn't talk to them. Second, she's a Gentile. The Jewish teachers wouldn't talk to the Gentiles. Uh, Third, she's inside the house with him and she's got an unclean daughter which would have made him, from a ceremonial point of view, unclean. It does not bother him at all. He cuts through the social conventions of the day, uh, which he just thought were irrelevant, wrong, and engages with her. But this is where, if I can say, the difficulties begin. Verse 27. I'm sure you probably noticed there is a to put it politely, a sharpness to what he says. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And I want to stop here and just acknowledge what many will be thinking. Um, Has Jesus had a really bad night? (laughs) Um, To put it politely, did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed that day? He sounds both rude, sexist and racist and I don't think you can get away from that. To describe someone as a dog in Jesus' day was derogatory. That's just what it was. It's not like you're my little puppy. For a Gentile to be described by a Jew as a dog was fairly common because that's literally how they saw them. They were the dogs. What is shocking is to hear this come from the mouth of Jesus. And the whole tone of what Jesus appears to be saying is negative to the point of being offensive. Because what he's saying is the children are the Jews and they are the ones who are fed the bread. The dogs, the Gentiles... Well, they're tossed the scraps. What is going on? Well, the one thing to note is, and you might think this is a very uh, poor way of trying to soften the blow, is the dogs still get to eat something at the end. But that hardly softens what we've got described here in terms of what Jesus says. At best, It's a challenge by Jesus to justify to the woman her request for the daughter to be healed. At worst, though, it just sounds racist. Now, one of the problems is we don't know the tone or just the manner in which the words were spoken. And if I can give you a uh, parallel illustration of that, um, we can talk to someone with what might sound like robust derogatory terms with a smile and a wink on our face. Pip, you little villain. (laughs) And we're just laughing. And we don't mean too much. And so at that level, if I can just say, we do need to have a certain amount of grace towards Jesus because it just seems so out of character. You think, what is going on here? And it's worth saying what we'll see is he isn't racist. 
And I'll show you that as we get through to the second and third stories. But it's one of those things where you just have to kind of suspend judgment because it just doesn't sound right. What's interesting is the way the woman responds. And she's not offended from what we can work out. Verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And you could just imagine her saying that with a smile on her face. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go to the demon, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And so she went home and found her child lying in bed and the demon had gone. You have to say she's got a quick wit. <laughs> she responds straight back to Jesus. It's like straight back in your face. Okay, well, even the dogs down the table get to eat Jesus. And he says, okay, I'll heal your daughter. And the way it comes across, it's almost like he's inviting her into the dialogue to say, come and see if you can um, have a go at me. Now, we don't know, but that's what appears to be the case. But what's interesting to note is the woman is not upset by this. She describes him as Lord. And what is confronting is there is a truth there that Jesus is enunciating that actually the Jewish peoples are the ones I've come for first, the Gentiles come second. And that's a principle that is all through Scripture that the Jewish were God's chosen people. And Jesus is saying, that's true. The Gentiles come second. Now, Paul says the same thing. And we, I think, struggle with this because we don't come from the Middle East. But the Jewish people are God's chosen people. And they were first and primary in the way God worked to save the world. And that is not to say that we're not important, but it is to say we come second in the order. And that still is the case today. God still, I take it, has a love for his people, Israel, and all I hear coming out of Israel is many people coming to know Jesus as Messiah. And they are what they call themselves Messianic Jews. God has not forgotten them. He's still working there to bring Jewish people to himself and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come second in the order. And the woman rightly recognises this and recognises his authority. And the result is, Jesus says, with a word, your daughter is healed. And her faith in Jesus is rewarded. And I think what is striking in this passage is the authority of Jesus' word. And it's a confronting authority that he confronts this woman with this reality of the Jewish priority. She's not put off by that. And she responds to it. And then with a word, without the child even there, she's healed. What are we to make of this interaction then? This is what struck me as I was thinking about it. I think we rightly talk about Jesus as our friend, as someone who is with us. And he describes himself to the disciples, John 15, as a friend and a brother not my servants. And that is absolutely a reality of who Jesus is. He is our brother. But he is far more than that. He is the king who has all authority. And there is a side to Jesus' character which is coming out here, which is very confronting. And he will say things that are very confronting. 
in particular in our culture today where the authority of the Bible and the teaching of the Christian faith is minimised and marginalised, we need to realise that he has all authority and he will confront us with that. Jesus' word has authority. He and his word stand over us. And from a distance, he heals the girl with just one word. That's what this section is emphasising. And what we're going to see in the two miracles that follow is his incredible compassion and the compelling nature of his character. But what we first see is his authority and the confrontational side of his character. And in this anti-authoritarian age that we live in, which is absolutely one of the ways you can accurately describe the culture here in Australia today, we just are anti-authoritarian. And that absolutely affects the way Christians will relate to Jesus. We must not, in this culture, reduce Jesus to just some sentimental figure who will never challenge everyone or challenge me. The world will push us to rewrite or reinterpret the scriptures and reinterpret Jesus so that it suits our own predilections and inclinations. And I keep meeting Christians who want to reinterpret the scripture so it suits their own desires. But the person of Jesus has this stubborn shape to him that will resist all manipulation. And it's worth noting he pronounced both blessing and curse. He announced both salvation and judgment. He spoke of the reality to come of both heaven and hell. And it's confronting. And I think about some of the words that will confront us in our culture today. He was confronting this lady with a reality in that day that she was second and that the Jews were first. I thought of John 14 verse 6, their famous words, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what he's saying is there is no other option. I am the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in this world where we want all sorts of options, Jesus says, actually, no, I'm the only option. It's very confronting. In a world that says live for yourself, he says this, you've heard that it's said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this should be the defining ethic of Christianity. The way we love people who are against us and pray for them and care for them. It's very confronting. We are not just to do what we want, we are to love those against us. Matthew 7 verse 13 to 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I mean, our culture says everyone's going to get there. Whenever I talk to people about the Christian faith, they all think everyone gets there. No, they don't. Small is the gate, it's, it's such a confronting word that he says, narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Or Mark chapter 9, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off for it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And he's speaking figuratively there of get rid of stuff in your life that will cause you to be cut off from God. 
And this is the Jesus of the Gospels. He's confronting. And it's what that woman discovered that day. Let me tell you the story of a friend of mine named Rod and his journey to following Jesus. He had a church background, but growing up in the church he was in, uh, the Bible was not seen as a historical book, an authoritative book. It was something that would help you live a good life. But he said one day a minister turned up who spoke on the reality that the Bible was actually an accurate historical book. And of all things, was speaking on the book of Exodus and how it was historically accurate. And it started him thinking he was in a post-doctorate program doing a PhD. And he started to read the Gospels afresh and discovered a number of things. One was it was historically accurate. Secondly, Jesus was real. Third, he was God. He said he came to the point, he said it was not emotional. He said it was completely volitional, an act of the will where he said he had to bow the knee because he was confronted by who Jesus was. He was either Lord, liar or lunatic and he realised he was the Lord and he gave his life to him. He said the emotions came later but he started to follow because he was confronted with Jesus' authority. That's not the only reason why we'll follow Jesus. The second is his compassion. And this story is so stark in comparison to the confrontation that Jesus just had with this Gentile lady, the Greek woman with the possessed child. Let me read from verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. We're into the area where Jesus healed or cast out the legion of demons from that man's life that really created enormous stir in the district again gentile territory there's some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk he's basically deaf and mute and they begged jesus to place his hand on him 33 after he took him aside away from the crowd so he needed some space jesus put his fingers into the man's ears then he spat and touched the man's tongue and he looked up to heaven, I take it he's praying, and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephrathah, which means be open. At this the man's ear were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Now we can see from the previous thing, he did not need to do this. He has the authority with his words just to heal. But I take it for pastoral reasons, and to assure this man of his care, he literally does it in a physical manner, touching him with his saliva. And there's a word there, which I've got circled here in verse 34, with a deep sigh. And it's a word that means compassion or love. And so as he looks to heaven with this deep sense of love and compassion for this Gentile man, he ministers to him in a physical way to reassure him and heals him. And I was so struck by this after this previous engagement where you think, is he racist? No, he absolutely cares. With this deep sense of compassion, the deep sigh, he is moved by this man's condition. 
Now, I want you to note something about this healing. It's a direct fulfilment of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. When you go home, read Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. It's an early prophecy in the book of Isaiah that announces God is going to come. And amongst other things, he says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, then the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And here you have this deaf, mute man being healed. And what he's fulfilling is this promise that God would come to redeem them. And here is God. He has come. And when he comes, he is moved. And he cares. Why do we follow Jesus? Well, it's because he loves us. Let me tell you the story of Debbie. I will always remember this story because Debbie is the first person as an Anglican minister I got the privilege to be involved leading to Christ. And Debbie had grown up in a, in a good home, a very educated family. The father was vice-chancellor of the university. But in spite of that, there was almost no knowledge of the Christian faith. Had never been to church in Sunday school, whatever. She had no idea of who Matthew, Mark, Luke or John were. And as a teenager, had a very troubled life in rebellion. And for reasons I won't go into, the reality of the mistakes she made lived with her almost every six months. She'd been filmed under the influence of alcohol, drunk, and it was the clip that the news station would pull out whenever they had a story about teenage alcoholism. And she would view herself. It was like this Groundhog Day experience. And a friend of hers was a Christian and was this compelling witness to her, and she turned up at church. I remember the first time she turned up, she wanted to know what it was all about and I explained the Christian faith and explained the gospel to her and I said, you know, Jesus loves you and he has died for all of our sins and he's died for all of your sins and mistakes that you've made and he can forgive you, Debbie. And she just started crying. The tears just poured out of her eyes and I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, Bruce, I can't even forgive myself. How is it possible that God can forgive me. Are you serious? And I said yes and explained what Jesus had done again. And she just cried and said, I want to follow. It was like, where do I sign up? And she gave her life to the Lord Jesus that moment. And I remember asking her, look, a good thing to do would be to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And she just said to me, who are they? And she's still following Jesus today. Why do we follow Jesus? It's because of his incredible compassion for us and his love. But there is a third reason. And this is the extra story we didn't read. And it's a passage that typically is never preached on. 
it's kind of seen as superfluous. It's the feeding of the 4,000. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there is two feeding stories in Mark's Gospels. There's the feeding of the 5,000. That's the one that everyone typically gets taught in Sunday school. But they never refer to the feeding of the 4,000. And sometimes commentators have said, who don't trust the Bible, that oh, Mark's just telling the same story again with a few details changed because he needed it to kind of make the story look better. Now, that's not the case. Um, others have said, yeah, he feeds them twice, I'm not quite sure why. Now, I was one of those up until literally this week when I started to dig deeper and think about the story. And it's quite interesting because, and I hadn't realised this because it's not self-obvious, the first story he's feeding the Jewish people. Guess who he's feeding now? The Gentiles. Completely different group. And it's almost like those words that he spoke to the woman that seemed so harsh are actually coming true now. He's fed the 5,000 Jewish, now he's feeding the Gentile people. And that's why I say Jesus is not racist, because you see, he does all this ministry outside of Jerusalem to the Gentiles to say, yes, I have not forgotten you, I'm coming for you, but I'm coming first for the Jewish people. And I want you to, I'm not going to read through the whole story, I'm just going to read the first three verses, because it is so fascinating. Chapter 8, and just remember, he's in the Decapolis, where that man with the legion of demons had thrown out... Went into the pigs, they jumped off, huge commotion, they kind of ran him out of town, but you can imagine that man went off and told them all about what happened. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and so this is this region, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. It's that same sense of, I love them. These are Gentiles. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Hence the feeding now of the 4,000. Just look at verse 2. It's easy to roll over, but it just so struck me. They've already been with me three days and nothing to eat. These Gentile people who would have seen the man with the legion of demons healed are so captivated by Jesus, they do not want to leave him. There is just this compelling characteristic about Jesus. And I was thinking about periods of ministry I've been in both. I've only ever worked in two churches, by the way, Fig Tree and Manly. And uh, happy to stay in both of them and having a great time. And in each place, there's been periods of ministry where you just sense God is at work in this palpable way. And when you're in the middle of it, it's just like, I just pray it will never end. <laughs> because there's just this sense of the Holy Spirit and God working, bringing people to faith, people's lives being turned around. And it's just, it's incredible. I remember when I was a young minister as an evangelist, every week I'd go out and someone would come to faith. And it got to the point where I was so exhausted, I said to God, as I went out on another visit, please God, stop. I can't keep up with it. And I went out and someone else came to faith. And I, just, I went home that night and just laughed. I just thought, well, I'm not in control, obviously. And I look at this section here of these people, they don't want to leave him, even though they haven't eaten and it's been going on for three days now. And you could just imagine, we don't know exactly what was happening, but I strongly suspect, given the pattern of his ministry, he is healing people and he's teaching people. And the thing about Jesus is, 
There is just something that is so compelling about him that when your eyes are open, you don't want to leave him. He's compelling. There's never been anyone like him through all of history. There never will be anyone like him in the rest of history. He is followed universally around the world. There is no one like Jesus. And as you read about him, he is just so compelling. Let me finish with the story of our Archbishop, Kanishka Raphael. Kanishka is a friend of mine. I went through college with him. And I have to say, he's one of the most delightful human beings and most gracious people I've met. And it's an honour to serve under him as our Archbishop. And he's equally at ease talking to someone like Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, as he is genuinely caring for a homeless man at St Andrew's Cathedral where he was the Dean. And he has that kind of warmth about him. And the story of his conversion is that he grew up in a Buddhist family, emigrated out here to Australia. And as he reached university years, started to think I should take my Buddhism more seriously, but had a friend at university who invited him to read John Gospel. And because he said, look, I guess I will, he thought he should. And he said, why don't you read Mark or John? And he read Mark at the age of 21, and he says, and I went and watched the video last night, it's on YouTube, I might post it next week in my weekly email, because it's beautiful hearing him tell it. He said he was just so captivated by Jesus, and particularly in comparison to the Buddha. He said, as I read about Jesus, he just captivated, and I'd already had the word compelled in my outline, and he literally said, I was just compelled to follow him. And his words were, I worked out Jesus was for me and I had to ask myself the question, was I for him? <laughs> and it's such a beautiful, simple way to put it. He said, so I bowed the knee and gave myself, my life to him. He was compelled. And I want to stop and go back to where we started. Why do we follow Jesus? Because... He is God who confronts us with the full authority of God. He is the Lord. But what you learn about this Lord is that he's incredibly compassionate. And in a way that is just astounding, he is so compelling. What else will we do? And friends, in this world that drifts further away from the memory of the Christian faith, that's why we follow Jesus. He is confronting, he is compassionate, he is compelling. And friends, if you don't know him this morning, I'd invite you to bow the knee and start following him this day. Why don't we stop and pray? I'm just going to give you a moment just to respond to him. His authority, his love, the wonder of who he is. And just say your own words of response. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus. 
he says things at times that we find hard to understand but yet we discover that there is this authority there but it's driven by love and compassion father we are compelled to know him and to follow him and to obey him we thank you that he is our brother our friend but also our lord and king and may he be all of those things to us and for those who don't know him here today i pray that you would just move in their hearts and open their eyes so that they could see the wonder of who jesus is and begin to follow him in whose name we pray amen